Center. Her cafeteria was a clubhouse for the local senior citizens who might spend an entire afternoon huddled over a single serving of rice pudding. The K&W was past its prime, whereas my cafeteria was located in the sparkling new Crabtree Valley, a former swamp that made her mall look like a dusty tribal marketplace. The Piccadilly had red velvet walls and a dining room lit by artificial torches. A suit of armor marked the entrance to this culinary castle where, we were told, the customer was always king. As a dishwasher, I spent my shifts yanking trays off a conveyor belt and feeding their contents into an enormous, foul-mouthed machine that roared and spat until its charges free of congealed fat and gravy, came steaming out the other end, fogging my glasses and filling the air with the harsh smell of chlorine. I didn't care for the heat or the noise, but other than that, I enjoyed my job. The work kept my hands busy, but left my mind free to concentrate on more important matters. Sometimes I would study from the list of irregular Spanish verbs I kept posted over the sink, but most often I found myself fantasizing about a career in television. It was my dream to create and star in a program called Socrates and Company, in which I would travel from place to place accompanied by a brilliant and loyal proboscis monkey. Socrates and I wouldn't go looking for trouble, but week after week, it would manage to find us. The eyes, Socrates, go for the eyes, I'd yell during one of our many fight scenes. Maybe in Santa Fe, I'd be hit over the head by a heavy jug and lose my memory. Somewhere in Utah, Socrates might discover a satchel of valuable coins or befriend someone wearing a turban but at the end of every show, we would realize that true happiness often lies where you very least expect it. It might arrive in the form of a gentle breeze or a handful of peanuts, but when it came, we would seize it with our own brand of folksy wisdom. I'd planned it so that the final moments of each episode would find Socrates and me standing suddenly occurred to me that we were all held captive in that prison known as the human mind. I would muse, or... It suddenly occurred to me that freedom was perhaps the greatest gift of all. I'd hope to crack these people like nuts, sifting through their brains and coming away with the lessons garnered by a lifetime of regret. Unfortunately, Having spent the better part of their lives behind bars, the men and women I worked with seemed to have learned nothing except how to get out of doing their jobs. Kettles boiled over and steaks were routinely left to blacken on the grill as my co-workers crept off to the stockroom to smoke and play cards or sometimes have sex. 
It suddenly occurred to me that people are lazy, my reflective TV voice would say. This was hardly a major news flash, and as a closing statement, it would undoubtedly fail to warm the hearts of my television audience, who by their very definition were probably not too active themselves. No, my message needed to be more upbeat and spiritually rewarding. Joy, I think. Whacking the dirty plates against the edge of the slop can. What brings people joy? As Christmas approached, I found my valuable fantasy time cut in half. The mall was crazy now with hungry shoppers, and every three minutes I had the assistant manager on my back, hollering for more coffee cups and vegetable bowls. The holiday customers formed a loud and steady line that reached past the coat of arms all the way to the suit of armor at the front door. They wore cheerful Santas pinned to their bobbled shirts and carried oversized bags laden with power tools and assorted cheeses, bought as gifts for friends and relatives. It made me sad and desperate to see so many people strangers whose sheer numbers eroded the sense of importance I was working so hard to invent. Where did they come from and why couldn't they just go home? I might swipe their trays off the belt without once wondering who these people were and why they hadn't bothered to finish their breaded cutlets. They meant nothing to me and watching them move down the line towards the cashier, it became apparent that the feeling was mutual. They wouldn't even remember the meal, much less the person who had provided them with their piping hot tray. How was it that I was important and they were not? There had to be something that separated us. I had always looked forward to Christmas, but now my enthusiasm struck me as cheap and common. Leaving the cafeteria after work, I would see even more people swarming out of the shops and restaurants like bees from a burning hive. Here were the young couples in their stocking caps and the families clustered beside the fountain, each with its lists and marked envelopes of money. It was no wonder the Chinese people couldn't tell them apart. They were sheep, stupid animals programmed by nature to mate and graze and bleed out their wishes to the obese, retired school principal who sat on his ass in the mall's sorry-looking North Pole. My animosity was getting the best of me until I saw in their behavior a solution to my troubling identity crisis. Let them have their rolls of gift wrap and gaudy, personalized stockings. If it meant something to them, I wanted nothing to do with it. This year, I would be the one without the shopping bags the one wearing black in protest of their thoughtless commercialism. My very avoidance would set me apart and cause these people to question themselves in ways that would surely pain them. Who are we, they'd ask, plucking the ornaments off their trees. What have we become, and why can't we be more like that somber fellow who washes dishes down the...
FM. Happy holidays. Send us some money. Click on the website. We deserve it.
time on my radio call-in shows. Had my father been driving, we would have locked all the doors and ignored the stop signs, speeding through the area as quickly as possible because that's what smart people did. Pulled over and parked behind a van whose owner stood examining his flattened tire with a flashlight. Things might get a little rough up there, so just do what I tell you and hopefully no one will get hurt. She flipped her hair over her shoulder and stepped out of the car, kicking aside the cans and bottles that lined the curb. My sister meant business, whatever it was, and in that instant she appeared beautiful and exotic and dangerously stupid. Local teens slain for sport, the headlines would read. Holiday hijinks end in homicide. Maybe someone should wait with the car, I whispered, but she was beyond reason, charging up the street in her sensible shoes with a rugged, determined gait. There was no fumbling for a street address or doorbell. Lisa seemed to know exactly where she was going. I followed her into a dark vestibule and up a flight of stairs, where without even bothering to knock, she threw open an unlocked door and stormed into a filthy, overheated room that smelled of stale smoke, sour milk, and seriously dirty laundry. Three odors that, once combined, can peel the paint off of walls. This was a place where bad things happened to people who clearly deserved nothing but the worst. The stained carpet was littered with cigarette butts, and clotted, dust-covered flypaper hung from the ceiling like beaded curtains. In the far corner of the room, a man stood beside an overturned coffee table, illuminated by a shadeless lamp that broadcast his shadow huge and menacing against the grimy wall. He was dressed casually in briefs and a soiled t-shirt and had thin, hairless legs, the color and pebbled texture of a store-bought chicken. We had obviously interrupted some rite of unhappiness, something that involved shouting obscenities while pounding upon a locked door with a white-tasseled loafer. The activity consumed him so completely that it took the man a few moments to register our presence. Squinting in our direction, he dropped the shoe and steadied himself against the mantel.
get you another. Hearing a fresh, slurred voice in the house, my brother and sisters rushed from their rooms and gathered to examine Lisa's friend, who clearly cherished the attention. Angels! You're a pack of goddamn angels! She was surrounded by admirers, and her eyes brightened with each question or comment. Which do you like better, my sister Amy asked. Spending the night with strange guys or working in a cafeteria? What were the prison guards really like? Do you ever carry a weapon? How much do you charge if somebody just wants a spanking? One at a time, one at a time, my mother said. Give her a second to answer.
this something's fucked up with this end table. Less than Christmas, Colonel Steve Austin suddenly remembers he has not bought any gifts for his friends and relatives. He decides to go to Jeffrey's, the large department store downtown. Can I help you, sir? Yes, I'm looking for something in Any particular fragrance? Uh, I thought you might be able to suggest something. Well, there certainly is a large variety to choose from. I can see that. That's where the store Santa Claus holds court. Probably some kid didn't get what he wanted and is registering a complaint. Thank you. 
sorry, pal. I'm in a hurry. I understand. Christmas rush. Yeah, well, I gotta run. Hey, mister, give me my Christmas present. Go away. Give it to me. Come on, kid. Go away. What seems to be the problem? He stole my Christmas present. The one that Santa Claus gave me. Look, pal, she's my daughter. I wanted to surprise her. Now she's gonna rule the whole thing. He's not my father. Give me my present. I think you better give it to her. Get out of my way. With that gun away, someone could get hurt. Not if you leave me alone. I'll stand aside. I'm walking out of here. Oh, well, you're not. the Office of Scientific Intelligence, Colonel Steve Austin is in the security conference with his boss, Oscar Goldman. Good thing you called me in on this, Steve. When I grabbed that guy, he dropped the package and it broke open. I could see the thing inside was no ordinary Christmas present. A rat. That's why I picked it up and got it to you. Steve, you seem to have a talent for finding trouble. But in this case, you may have stumbled on a major espionage ring. An espionage ring? Steve, the man you fought with in the department store is Harrison Fredericks. For a long while, he's been known to be a free agent in the espionage market, selling his services to the highest bidder. But what is even more interesting to us is what he was carrying in that package. What was it? It was an electronic fuel cell for our latest attack missile, the SYR-9. The SYR-9? I thought that was out in California. After landing on the Arctic terrain, Steve and Oscar were accosted by the enemy agent Remont at gunpoint, captured and locked up in an old warehouse. Is the wound serious, Oscar? I don't think so, Steve. Looks like a scratch. Where are we? It's a warehouse. Where are we?
Expect to resume normal broadcasting shortly. I'm glad you could make it. No problem, Oscar. I'm staying in town for the holidays. Steve, the Air Defense Command in Colorado Springs picked up an unusual radio message the other day on a restricted frequency. No identification codes? That's part of the problem. All messages received over the defense network are preceded by an identification code, and they are followed by a second ident code before signing off. And this communication has no code on either side. They can't even decode the message. What are we going to do? It defies analysis, Steve. As a matter of fact, nothing on record as language or numeric code is anything like it. I've called in Dr. Landis. Ethel Landis? She's the top expert in the field of coded communication. And she has a lot of kooky ideas, Oscar. I know, Steve, but we can't afford to overlook any possibilities.
made a very nice living for me, and it seems to have worked. Did you ever feel that this time the horror stories jinxed you, that something that you feared and had written about was coming true? No, it never even crossed my mind. Um, it's strange because off and on uh, in my career as a writer, I have certainly written. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest Stephen King was nearly killed in June of 1999 while taking his daily walk. He was walking along the gravel shoulder of Route 5, a two-lane highway near his home in Maine, when he was struck by a van driven by Brian Smith, who had several prior convictions for speeding and reckless driving. Over a year later, Smith was found dead in his home. King is still recovering from his injuries, which included nine breaks in his right leg, his right knee split almost directly down the middle, a fracture of his right hip, four broken ribs, and a scalp laceration that required nearly 30 stitches. His spine was chipped in eight places. Yet, fairly early in his recovery, he returned to writing. I spoke with Stephen King in 2000 after the publication of his book, On Writing, which is part memoir, part reflection on his craft. The last chapter is about the accident. We started with a reading. Most of the sight lines along the mile of Route 5, which I walk, are good. But there is one stretch, a short, steep hill, where a pedestrian walking north and see very little of what might be coming his way. I was three quarters of the way up this hill when Brian Smith, the owner and operator of the Dodge van, came over the crest. He wasn't on the road, he was on the shoulder. My shoulder. I had perhaps three quarters of a second to register this. It was just time enough to think, my God, I'm going to be hit by a school bus. I started to turn to my left. There is a break in my memory here. On the other side of it, I'm on the ground, looking at the back of the van, which is now pulled off the road and tilted to one side. This recollection is very clear and very sharp, more like a snapshot than a memory. There is dust around the van's taillights, a license plate, and the back windows are dirty. I register these things with no thought that I have been in an accident or of anything else. It's a snapshot, that's all. I'm not thinking. My head has been swapped clean. There's another little break here.
All right, Mutiny Radio. Thank you so much for being here. Give it up for yourselves for coming out to the seventh Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. Give yourselves up more. Give it up more than that. What was that? Come on, Jesus Christ! Wow. Let's get some energy in this place. Holy cow! This is going to be a great time. My name is Alex Kaufman. We have a really fun show in store for you tonight. Um, I uh, uh, I'm, I'm I'm super stoked to be here. I got here. Uh, I came here all the way from Montana. Uh, super fun. Uh, drove here from Montana actually. Uh, drove through a lot of small towns. The way you can tell which towns are populated by, uh, by like remote tech workers now is, uh, like I drove through one town that had a fancy bowling place. Like I don't know who looked at bowling and thought this is what we need to be gentrifying, but they, <laughs> they did it. Uh, they like gentrifying bowling is like going to a thrift store and trying to upcycle a wife beater. You know what I mean? It doesn't <laughs> make sense. Gentrifying bowling is like house flipping in a trailer park. Uh, 
which is mean because tornadoes do it enough. You know what I'm saying? It's not, it's not kind. Uh, I, uh, I'm sure right after the show I'm going to go get a stiff drink. I uh, started drinking way too much during the pandemic. Uh, the way that I realized that is I figured I'd take like a two-week break, two-week break from drinking. About a week into that break, uh, I was shaky all the time. I was cold constantly. I couldn't sit still at all. I uh, thought I was going through withdrawals. Turned out it was just COVID, though, so that was a relief somehow. Uh, that was good news in my book. Uh, started drinking too much partially because uh, my girlfriend got a cat. Uh, she got this cat. I'm supposed to say we got a cat, by the way. Uh, we got a cat. She's got so much anxiety, though, that now the only thing that we talk about is that cat's funeral. Like, it's <laughs> she's so worried about this cat dying. Like, the day after uh, we got him, she was already picking out an urn. She started price shopping crematoriums, which... <laughs> When you think of it, it actually sounds like a place a cat should love. The uh, crematorium. I'll wait. That's there. You go. Uh, also, sounds like the place where they make creamsicles, maybe, uh, or a porn studio. Look, it's not <laughs> what it sounds like. Uh, she's got so much anxiety about this cat dying, though. She's so worried about it. She she would have nightmares. Actually, she woke me up one night and she asked if we could put the cat's urn on display in a place of honor, right? Like put his put his urn up on the uh, on the mantle in the living room. And obviously, I suggested taxidermy, right? Uh, more of a conversation starter. She didn't like that, though. Uh, she didn't like that at all, so I took a step back. Took a step back because I feel like relationships are all about compromise. I told her, babe, look, uh, we can cremate the back half if you'll let me mount his head on the wall. So we're not together anymore. Uh, but neither is the cat. So that's... I am dating again. One of my buddies, he keeps trying to set me up on dates. Uh, my friend actually asked me if I'd ever date an anti-vaxxer. I said, sure, right? Uh, if I was looking for something short-term, that might be how I do it. I did go on a date he set me up on, though. Uh, on the date, the woman I was there with, she told me she was a sapien sexual, and I was like, no homo? Turns out what she actually said was sapiosexual, which uh, I guess is when you only date men who know what that word means. I don't know what that word means. <laughs> my grandfather likes to give me dating advice too. He always suggests the same thing. My grandfather he always says, uh, he, he always says to lay out rose petals as a romantic gesture. Uh, I've never understood this romantic gesture because to me it just seems like you're buying very expensive flowers and making a mess. Like it doesn't add up. Uh, and like the thing is, like my grandfather, he's an old timey dude. I'm sorry, but uh, ladies, if he's laying out rose petals for you, he's gonna try to make you clean that up. He's not, <laughs> not a good person. All right. Uh, <laughs> He is a very old-timey dude. My grandfather was a doctor during the Korean War. That's how old he is. Uh, he <laughs> Like, I grew up in a military family. My dad uh, flew planes to the Air Force, and I started smoking weed in high school. So that's, I think they call that legacy. I don't know. They're not <laughs> proud of me. Uh, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, did grow up in a military family. Kind of cool. You, you, you meet people from all different sorts of places. Uh, like, I have this friend who's really Italian. Most Italian guy I've ever met. His name, uh, his name is Raffaele Michele. And he hates it when I say his name that way. <laughs> he does not appreciate it at all. Uh, never going to stop saying it that way, though, because he found out one time I'd never had a cannoli before. So he insisted we go to a real Italian restaurant that evening. After dinner, the waitress came by and asked if we wanted anything for dessert. I said, yes, I'll have one cannoli, please. And she just chuckled. <laughs> she just chuckled. I turned to my buddy. He said, yeah, one cannoli. I actually called a cannolo. So <laughs> like, I don't know if he brought me there just to do that, okay? I don't know if that was his goal, but that guy's worse than a grammar Nazi, okay? I think we can agree. That guy's a linguistic fascist. That's exactly what that is. He's like a, a Mussolini. No, I'm sorry, Mussolino, right? Uh, there's really just the one. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, 
fun to be here. Uh, I uh, I'm trying to improve my life a little bit. Uh, trying to trying to get things in order. One of my friends suggested uh, manifesting to kind of try to help uh, get myself back on track. Uh, thing like I, I have a hard time getting into the manifesting thing though because uh, I feel like I believe in her more than she believes in herself, right? Because every manifesting story is the same. Every manifesting story is like I wanted something, I started manifesting it, I worked towards it, and I got it. And I think one of those steps might not be necessary. All right? Like I didn't manifest a donut. I went to Krispy Kreme. You understand? It's you didn't manifest your dream vacation, Jan. You saved up PTO. It's fine to have worked with it. Uh, <laughs> Okay, uh, I, I did try it though. I did try to get into it. Apparently, I've been doing it wrong. Uh, I did. I did give it a shot. Apparently, what I've been doing is actually called suicidal ideation. So that's not the same thing. Apparently, I didn't know. Uh, I quit therapy recently. I don't know if that's coming through. Uh, <laughs> don't know if you can tell. Uh, I quit therapy because I found out that my therapist lived in a houseboat, and that guy shouldn't be giving advice to anybody. <laughs> Like, that guy may have the degree, but he does not have the qualifications. You know, it's, like, I'm paying him $100 an hour, and he can't afford a house house. Are you kidding? Guy, it's so frustrating. Like, he didn't just decide to live down by the river. He decided to live on the river. You get what I'm, uh, I feel like some of you guys are on his side now. Uh <laughs> What's wrong with, it? nothing's wrong with living on a houseboat. What's wrong with, uh, it's, it's giving me advice also. Like, I just, I don't believe the advice. It's fine to make that choice. I, I will give him some credit, okay? Uh, when the ice caps melt, he'll still have seaside property. That's pretty cool. Give him that. Uh, it's also pretty cool to live in a place where piracy is still a legitimate concern. That's that's nice. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Uh, I'm just doing bullet journaling now uh, instead of therapy. For those of you who don't know what bullet journaling is, it's a note-taking system where you buy way too many highlighters and turn your feelings into an aesthetic competition. Uh, <laughs> I do it a little bit differently though. I take all the money that I would have spent on highlighters and I just buy bullet bourbon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I drink until I can be vulnerable with myself. That's my method. <laughs> uh, boy, I, uh, I'm also taking personality quizzes instead of therapy. Uh, personality quizzes are fun. Uh, I, don't, I don't like the BuzzFeed kind of personality quizzes. They ask you, the questions are too specific. They ask you like, what genre of music are you? Or uh, what house? What House of Dragons character has the same personal hygiene habits as your best friend from middle school? Right? They're just they're too specific. Uh, don't like it. I like the clinical exams. Uh, okay, there's a ghost here now. Uh, <laughs> apparently, welcome. Uh, I like the clinical exams. Uh, my favorite is the Big Five quiz. The biggest of the five for me was neuroticism. And when I saw that score, I asked myself, Oh, should I just take this a couple more times on a few different websites so I can average the results and really be sure? Turns out that question is the answer. That's how you know. Uh, started therapy when I was in middle school. Uh, my therapist, he told me about another client of his whose name was Alexander. That guy just went by the middle part of the name. That guy just went by uh, Zan. I thought that was so cool. Like, I didn't know you could do that. It's incredible. Uh, at around the same time, my parents told me that we were going to be moving to California, so I got it in my head that I could reinvent myself, right? Uh, I figured I'd go by Zan. I'd learn to skateboard, and I'd start doing hard drugs. I had a five-year plan. Guys, my guidance counselor should have been so proud. Uh, we did not move to California, though. It didn't happen. Uh, found out a little while later that Zan actually killed himself. Yeah, he was doing a different kind of bullet journaling. Uh, guess you could say I dodged that bullet, all right? It's or he took it for me. Look, it's not. You're growing at a fake person, all right? This is not. Not a real guy. Uh, all right, we'll do a little palate cleanser before I bring up your next act. Uh, you guys like puns? I feel like this is a pun crowd. Uh, 
Here's a pun for you. Anybody here know the book Thus Spoke Zarathustra? Ah, really filled a Nietzsche market. All right, that's... <laughs> uh, I'm going to bring up your next act, everybody. Uh, please give a big warm welcome uh, to... Uh, oh, who was it going to be next? Uh, hold on. I, if I was good at my job, I would have known this already. Are there any more seats? There's two seats here that aren't taken, but I don't know what this coat's about. Um, okay. All right, right in the front. Uh, no, we got we got two seats up here, folks. Uh, everybody, start filtering. Come on, come on in here. If you're a comic, if you're a comic who's on the show, get the fuck out. Uh, let the people who <laughs> let the people who paid for tickets come in here, uh, please. Uh, by all means. Uh, are there folks? Are there folks still out there? Come on in. There's there's two seats up here. Nobody's gonna. Nobody. I mean, nobody should. You know, harass you or whatever. Yeah. If you paid for a seat, get in here. Get your money's worth. You have a ticket? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. I don't know. How am I supposed to tell? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, all right. I'm gonna bring up your uh, your first act, everybody. Uh, it your first act uh, because I know that they're here. Everybody, give it up for Kathy Guest. Everybody, make some noise for Kathy Guest coming to the stage. Hey, everybody. There's seats up here. Come on in. Come on in. Oh my God, I so great to be part of the festival. I did comedy the other night as part of the festival, and I was hit on afterwards by this uh, much older man. Yeah, woo. Yeah, exactly. No, it's awesome. It's nice to know that my insure milkshake still brings the old boys to the yard. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. And like before the pandemic, too, like if that would have happened, I would have been like, ew, no. And now I'm like, ew, maybe. This younger guy I'm, and, and I are talking afterwards the other night, and he says to me, he goes, you know what? You look great. Stop it. He said, for your age. Yeah, he doesn't know what my age is, but it's okay. I said, you know what? That's such a nice compliment for your education level. Thank you. Thank you. It's all good. It's all good. Oh, man. Good to be here. So I actually spent 15 years in tech, a little bit about me. I was an executive in tech. Yes, hashtag lady business. Yeah, hey, which is exactly what I call my lady business when I don't call it the C-suite for obvious reasons. Yes, yes. And when I travel, people are, like, obsessed with it. They're like, oh, my God, what was it like spending 15 years as an executive in very male-dominated tech? Well, the last company that I worked for had this kind of fun little tradition where everybody in the company got names. Like the IT guys, they were the it guys. The accountants were the Dobros. And then I got excited one day because they finally came up with a name for the women in my business division. Mm -hmm. Brenda and Christy. And my name is Kathy. Yes, that sums up 15 years in tech. That's what that was. 15 years is a lucky number for me. Uh, I've been happily married for 15 years. Thank you. Um, it's weird because I've been married for over 20 years. <laughs> they can't all be equally happy. I don't make the rules. I don't. No, it's true. And that's a long time, and marriage is really hard. So, you know, ups and downs, of course. And, um, but I, you know, it's funny because when things got really hard and they did, like, I never considered divorce. Murder? Hell yes. Yes. 
I always know the married people in the audience. The married people in the audience are like, hell yeah. That's right. That's right. Okay, dial a murder. All right, we can do business later. You're the hitman. No, it's true. Absolutely. I can't give him, like, all my stuff. Divorce is out of the question. Silicon Valley is expensive. No, no, no. Plus, too, what happens if I divorce my husband and he meets another woman, falls in love, and lives happily ever after? I can't take that risk. No. No. But here's what happened after 15 years, well, I guess double time, of being happily married. Yes, happily married. And two kids later, because I have two kids, two teenagers, they're a gift you can't return. Uh, nobody told me. Nobody warned me. Oh, my God. But here's what happens after so many years together is that your hormones change. So I'm at this place in my 40s where, like, my hormones are going crazy. Like, your PSA to the younger ladies, oh, my God, I am hungry all the time and horny all the time, like, at the same time. True. Absolutely. And my husband will shoot me that look when the kids are out of the house, like, sexy time. And I'm like, I know you are not looking at me thinking we're going to have sexy time because you ain't got a damn sandwich in your hand. Go to the kitchen. Take care of business. He comes back, right, with his penis between two, you know, with bread, and two slices of bread. Yes, yes, gluten-free because I believe in healthy eating. Creative. But it's true. Now my fantasy threesome, right, it's me, a hot guy, and a sandwich truck. <laughs> yes. Let's do it. Let's do it. But I'm also at an age, too, where, you know, what I want is very simple in life. I figured it out. I just need a guy. take me on two dates. And I just hope that those two never meet. Simple. Very simple. It's true. Uh, so I butt-dialed Lyft the other day. I don't know how I did it. I butt-dialed Lyft, the ride-sharing service that came to my house. They're like, did you call us? I'm like, I guess I did. It's like my dumb face <laughs> on the app. Yeah, I guess I did. And they're like, well, we got to charge you $5 for a no-shows ticket. Then I thought, you know what? $5, that's awesome. Because that is the cheapest butt lift my ass is ever going to see. Get better. And I learned, here's what I learned during COVID is that there's three levels of fitness. Three levels of fitness. There's fit, there's unfit, and holy shit, nothing fits. And I've been a couple of those at the same time. Easy. Not a, not a problem. Not a problem. But my husband, like, he's, like, super into fitness, and he gets me to do it. I don't need it. It's a little much. But it's growing on me. It's totally growing on me because now I'm getting to track some really cool metrics. Like right now, for example, you guys, I'm tracking the number of steps I need to reach my goal of pretentious Silicon Valley ass. I'm so close, you guys. Don't worry, I'll tell you. So um, kind of leave you with this thought. Um, I'm also at a place in my 40s where I realized that I look like I work at Target. <laughs> so every time I'm at Target, like people look at me, go, yeah, she works here. And it doesn't even bother me that they think I work there. Because people in retail work there. But it bothers me a little bit that people look at me and they're like, you know what? That white lady looks like she knows where stupid shit is. <laughs> and you know what, you guys? They're right. <laughs> I do. I do. Like I know near me. In San Jose, at the Target store, I know that the pregnancy tests are right next to the weed drug tests. But that can't stand. So here's what I did, ladies. 
I added some condoms, some condoms and plan B, and some music, some wine. And so I like to think of it as a value bundle for the ladies. Aisle 16, Cottle Road, San Jose. Tell them Kathy Guest sent you. Thanks, everybody. Keep making some noise for Kathy Guest, folks. Come on, give it up for Kathy. That was great. That was fantastic. Your next comic is, uh, is San Francisco's very own Dorian Trong, everybody. Give it up for Dorian. Giving it up. Hello, everyone. I, uh, you know, I'm a little flustered because I uh, got here late. Uh, I was signing a petition for anti-bullying. Yeah, thank you. But uh, I got to say, looking back at it, it's kind of stupid, you know? Like, what are you going to do? You're going to show up to a 13-year-old's home, like, with a list of names? Like, hey, stop having fun. Anyway, I <laughs> I, th I think the real the real reason I signed the petition is because, like, I, I remember how it felt to be, like, beaten up by a group of eighth graders, you know what I mean? It's a terrible feeling, uh, especially when you're 35. Because people don't help you when you're an adult and you're getting your ass kicked by kids. They just look. You know? It's funny, the whole time I was getting my ass beat, I was like, I'm going to get them back. I'm going to do it by fucking their moms. Except that was, uh, was, uh, was not e as easy as I thought, you know what I mean? I could have done like a million other things, but that was the first thought I had. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to give it to their moms. But I just settled for their dads, you know, and a couple of uncles. Fine, fine. I'm, I'm having trouble. I was having trouble uh, looking for a job, uh, so then I decided to lie on my resume. And I worked like a charm, guys. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like all I had to do was say, like, oh, I'm bilingual, and they just, they just believed me. It's weird. That's how I got my job at here at, uh, in the public defender's office. Whenever someone comes in uh, speaking a different language, I just use Google Translate, right? And then I type in there, I type in, uh, I was like, uh, if you ever come back, I'm going to call the cops. Yeah, I might not have a good job, um, but I am dating a white girl, which is uh, the American dream for, like, immigrants, you know what I mean? We still get into arguments, um, you know? Because of our cultural differences, like some, I, I sometimes I just get so frustrated whenever we're at a restaurant and she asks the waiter, like, 